Go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 18. We're picking up where we left off. Whose kingdom? With the, sling, with the swing of a sling and the flight of a rock, everything changed for Israel and David. He was no longer obscure and unknown. He was a rock star. <laughs> Gerald did a pun last week. He opened the door. Okay? With the head rolling thing. Yeah. So. Man, everybody loved David. Well, almost everybody. Love David. We see in this passage quite a contrast in how Saul responded to David and what God was doing and how his family and all of Israel responded. David was the anointed king that God had chosen for himself. He was a Messiah, a deliverer for Israel. And what we see is the difference between God-centered lives and a self-centered life. And man, have I got a story to tell you today. And if it wasn't in the Bible, you might not believe it to be true. This chapter has everything. I mean, there's a hero. He's a warrior, leader, defender, deliverer. He goes from Mr. Nobody to Mr. Popularity. And there's a close friendship. And they become brothers. And there's battles. And there's bloodshed. And man, it gets nasty. There's jealousy and hatred. There's a secret enemy that schemes and attempts murder four times in this chapter. There's a divided royal family. There's a princess that's going to have a royal wedding and, oops, uh, she marries a different guy. And then there's another royal wedding and there's a love story. I mean, it's, this, it has everything. There's a ridiculous dowry. That's a, a bride price. Back then you paid before the wedding. Now you pay afterwards. Like I'm going to pay for that later. Here's the thing, though. As we go through this passage, don't read ahead. You're going to want to. You're going to be. Don't you do it. Don't you read ahead. Let's work through this passage together, okay? Ultimately, we're going to see God's favor versus a wicked king's evil intent to murder. And we're going to see David called in the middle, and it's going to go back and forth. But we're going to see who wins. We already know, don't we? We just sang about it. But... The first thing I want you to see is that God-centered life is characterized by love and godly relationships. A self-centered life is characterized by hate and selfishness. Let's start there in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, he was talking about David. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him. That day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of of kings of Saul's servant, his servants. So they're returning from the battle. David had just defeated Goliath. And verse two tells us that Saul kept David. It means that he wasn't going to let him go back to hell with the sheep anymore. He's going to keep him. This is this was something Saul did. He, he was known to do. He kept the best soldiers for himself. 
And they were called the men of war. These were the best soldiers. It was like the special forces unit, but it was almost also like secret service. So it was, you know, they, they went to war, but this was Saul's guys, okay? And where Jonathan sees the one who might be God's chosen for the throne, Saul sees somebody that's going to strengthen his reign. So we see Jonathan, that's Saul's son, the prince, he pulls David aside for a conversation. Actually, I think it's several conversations. I think these next few verses happen over a period of time. But it says they were knit together. They were bound together. These guys were like two peas in a pod. They had so much in common. They were both brave men whose courage came out of their faith in God. And they were known for their courage. They were on the same page. That is, they believed this was God's nation. It was God's people. The king should be God's man, a representative for the Lord and a spiritual shepherd for God's people. But it says Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Doesn't that sound a little bit like the verse I was sharing with the kids? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. And this is, and we'll see as we continue in First and Second Samuel, a very special friendship. But I need to say... It is not an inappropriate relationship. It's not. There's nothing sexual about this relationship. And as we go through these books of the Bible, we'll deal with that more directly. But that's just wrong, okay? At this point, they're having a conversation. But Jonathan, as royalty, was leading the conversation. And you really get the sense that, that Jonathan had probably heard... What Samuel had said to Saul, or at least he'd heard about what Samuel had said to Saul, that, that, that Saul's um, line would not continue on the throne, that there would be someone else. And Jonathan, as a, a man of faith, he wanted to serve God in any way he could. And he, was prob- he had probably been waiting for God's man to appear on the scene. And here comes David. And in verse 3, we're told that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And this kind of covenant was made. What they would do is they would cut an animal in half and lay it open. And the two, and the two parties would walk between the animals and, and it would signify. Basically, they're saying, if I'm unfaithful to my word in this covenant, may I end up in pieces like this animal. It was a serious deal. And they committed to one another. And I'm sure they, they committed to have each other's back. There was a, a, a deep friendship here. A relationship of love. A shared faith in God. There was loyalty. They became like brothers. But then you see what Jonathan did. And this is, this is crazy. This is incredible. Jonathan took off his royal robe... His armor, his sword, which I guarantee you was the second best sword in all of the kingdom. He took off his sword, he took his bow, he took his belt, he gave them all to David. That was a big deal. This was significant because these things represented his royalty. They represented his place and who he was. In a sense, Jonathan renounces his Position as crown prince and he transfers, as far as his own will goes, he transfers the right of succession to David. Now this wasn't official, but it was significant. It was very significant. 
S.G. DeGraff says this deed on, on his part, on Jonathan's part, was an act of faith. It demonstrated his trust in the Lord. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. You hear me? Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against the Christ who is truly king. And what we see is Jonathan's commitment to God's kingdom, even at his own, at his own expense. But David was loved. He was loved by Saul's family, his servants, the people, the soldiers. We'll see as we go through all of Israel and Judah. There are six references to love in this chapter with David always as the object. Was that just hero love? Was that just uh, hero worship? Is that what was going on? I mean, David was the man. He was the hero. He was the warrior and he would become the leader. But I think there was more than that. Individuals who love God and walk with Him love others. It's as I said with the children a while ago. Loving others is a natural outflow of those who walk with God. It is. They go together. And I think David's love inspired their love for Him. They finally had someone up top that cared about them. Someone who would be a spiritual leader and a shepherd. And there had been a huge void there. And now all that I just, we just looked at, all of that happened over a period of time. But now verse 6 takes us back to the day that David dispatched with Goliath. And we see a self-centered life is characterized by hate and selfishness. Look with me in verse, starting in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh Uh-oh. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him and he said... They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And one more, what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Okay. So obviously this song is exaggerated. David haven't had David hasn't had the time to kill ten thousand yet. He's just getting started good. But Saul was used to taking all the credit. And when Jonathan took matters into his own hands a few chapters back and he won a significant battle, it was Saul who took the credit. And frankly, it wasn't unusual for the king to take all the credit for a win. But not only is Saul having to share the credit, David is rightly getting more credit. It's unlikely that anybody here was trying to offend the king. But boy, did it. And here's the reality. A self-absorbed person is easy to offend. It's just true. As one commentator said, like the wicked queen who could not stand being the second most beautiful woman in the land. You'll recall Snow White was the most beautiful, right? Saul seethed with resentment against David's increasing popularity. Saul knows his days are numbered as king. And I'm sure Samuel's words echoed in his memory constantly. Back in 1 Samuel 15, 28, 
when David had once again disregarded and disobeyed the word of the Lord, the prophet Samuel came to Saul and said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That is someone who will listen to and follow the Lord, someone who has a heart for God, someone who has spiritual eyes. Saul was about himself, his life, his reign. And it seems he's starting to figure out that maybe David, maybe David is the better neighbor. Hmm. And Saul says, what else is left for him but the kingdom? And I would say, whose kingdom is it, Saul? Whose kingdom? You know, back when Saul became king, God allowed it. The people wanted a big, bad human king and warrior like all the other nations. But Saul was never to be a replacement for God. He was to be a human representative of the real king. And Saul eyed David from that day forward. This, this trips me up. Dun, dun, dun. He's giving him stink eye. That's it. It's the side eye, stink eye. He's, boy, I'm watching you. I'm going to be watching you. He's, he's watching. He's, he's like, i got to keep my eye on this one. Something's going on. And it is. Something is going on. Second point. A God-centered life demonstrates godly wisdom. A self-centered life is consumed by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Look in verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. That's like a guitar. And, and as he did by day, as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Wow. Okay. It just feels like this relationship is deteriorating somehow. I don't know. So we know from chapter 16 that Saul is tormented by this harmful spirit from God. After God's spirit left Saul, this harmful spirit came on the scene. And we also know that David's music helped him. And David had been serving in this way part-time, maybe on call, and now he's leading Saul's men of war, his special forces unit, but it says here that he was also still playing the lyre for, for Saul. So he's working double shifts. I don't know how David has time for all of this. And this sounds kind of sketchy to me, i got to tell you, it sounds kind of sketchy. Saul's having an episode, but it says that Saul had this thought, and it seems like a rather lucid thought to me. I'm going to take this spear and I'm going to pin him to the wall. And I'm sure he would have gotten off with an insanity plea if he had succeeded. But I get the impression that David ducked and he dodged and he kept on playing. At least the first time he did. He might have taken the rest of the day off after the second time. But twice he tried to spear him. But David and others must have assumed, they just assumed that this is Saul's having an episode. He's, he's having, in other words, he's dangerous, but he's not doing this intentionally or malicious. And all I got to say for that is, okay. Okay. And there's something significant with this spear. Saul kept his spear close. You know who else was known for his spear? 
Goliath. One is an external enemy to God's people and the other is making himself an enemy to the God of Israel by opposing God and God's plan and God's man. Well, let's talk about this jealousy. Jealousy is dictionary and psychology website definition. Jealousy is a reaction to a perceived threat or fear of losing someone or something you already possess in some sense. This emotion becomes sin when it causes selfishness and envy and hatred. And when it leads to feelings of resentment and bitterness and hostility. And we, we see this show up in a list, list of sin throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, Paul was addressing divisions in the church. And he said, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? In other words, you're not behaving in the spirit. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And in James 3, 14 through 16, man, I think this describes Saul very well. It says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Jealousy and selfish ambition is, is built on a lie. It's built on a lie. It's not built on the truth. It's built on a lie. This wisdom is not, is not that which, which comes down from above, but it is earthly and sinful, I lost my place, it's unspiritual and it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder, there is chaos, and every evil thing. Sounds like Saul. And then there's David. Look in verses 12 and following with me. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. All right, so here's David. And we see a God-centered life that demonstrates godly wisdom. David is gaining in popularity. We see no signs that it's affecting him negatively. He knows this success is really God's success. God has placed him there for a reason. But it's about God's glory, not his. And you might say, well, JT, where do you see wisdom? And it is kind of snuck in there. It's hidden a little bit. I believe, uh, well, let's see. Here the word is translated success. And in most translations, that's how that word is, is translated. But in the King James and in the New King James, it's, it's translated behaved wisely. Behaved wisely. I believe both translations are true. David succeeded and David behaved wisely. It wasn't just David's ability to fight that made him stand out. One of the effects the Holy Spirit has on a person is to impart wisdom. The reality of how to live this life for God. And the, and the verse before the ones I just read from James, I believe, describes David. In verse 13 of James 3, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. It's coming from somebody who is walking with the Lord. Point three, 
A God-centered life seeks to serve and bless others. A self-centered life looks to use, manipulate, and harm others. Look with me in verse 13. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success... He, un, he stood in fearful awe of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him, before them. So after Saul misses David twice with the spear, he sends him off to fight. And he made him a commander of a thousand soldiers, which, by the way, was probably a demotion from leading the men of war. Okay? But Saul, man, he's losing it. He's going to keep him close. I'm going to send him away. In a little while, we'll see. He brings him into his house. He's just trying to figure out what to do with David. And it just keeps getting crazier. But David is serving. He's just serving. He's, he's serving the Lord. He's serving the Lord by serving others. He's serving Saul. He's playing music. He's a soldier. He's a leader. He's a commander. He's serving the people. He's leading in battle. The people see him go to battle and they see him come back after a victory over and over again. That's what they're seeing. And the people are no longer living in fear of the enemy. Before David, the prospects of possible slavery or death were real. Very real. Just imagine they're standing there in the valley of Eli here in Goliath for 40 days. And they're thinking, we're dead. We're just putting off the inevitable. But not anymore. God's power is seen through David. And that changed all of that. And it's not just his military leadership. There had been no spiritual leadership. He's serving Saul. He's serving the people. And he's serving God. David cares for God's people. He's fighting for them. And everyone knows that God is with him. And I want you again. I want to take you back to the Valley of Elah. To the battle with Goliath. And, and see what David said, not just to Goliath, but to everybody. Listen, he said to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army today to the animals, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. It's the Lord's name. It's the Lord who delivers. It's the Lord's battle. It's the Lord who saves. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. But Israel needed to know that there was a God in Israel. And don't think that David's speech was a one-off there. No, those words came from a heart that was after God's heart. And David knew the Lord had chosen him to lead others to know and follow him. The Lord was with David and David was there to serve. And all of Israel knew that God was blessing them through him. And God was working. But we see a self-centered life looks to use, manipulate and harm others. He had tried, Saul had tried the direct approach, but he failed to make his point. Sorry. 
It's the way my brain works. In his sin, he missed the mark. I mean, he missed, you know, David. He tried the direct approach and he failed. So Saul starts the scheme. In this passage, we're given, we're given an open look into the heart and mind of Saul. And it's not pretty. Man, it's not pretty. He sees David as an enemy. And we see his evil intent to kill David. But now he's going to try a different approach. The direct approach didn't work. He's going to try a different approach. He decided everybody will feel better about David's death if the enemy does it. Now everybody except David. So that's what he's thinking. And look with me in verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here's my eldest daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant. Be brave for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Okay. So real quickly, if you remember, when David faced Goliath, there had been talk among the soldiers that whoever fought Goliath would win the king's daughter in marriage as a prize. Y'all remember that? Well, David's been around a while. Nothing, nothing like that happened. It wasn't mentioned. Didn't come up. But now Saul's making an offer for his daughter's hand in marriage to David, but he's attaching it to future battles. And he's a sneaky rascal. Man. He's using smooth language. He's talking to a young man, and it's like a double dog dare. Man, only be brave and fight the Lord's battles. And he knows that David's all about fighting the Lord's battles. So he's, he's, he's speaking to David. And, but David, David has proven himself courageous. But David's response is one of humility here. He's a poor man, and he can't afford a proper dowry for the king's daughter. Which also brings the fact, if you'll remember, going back to the Valley of Elah, that whoever faced Goliath was supposed to be blessed financially as well, weren't they? Well, that's interesting. Nothing ever came of that either. Okay. So David says, I, I don't have a dowry. I, who am I to be, to be the king's son-in-law? And we're given the impression that David went off to fight the Lord's battles, because that's what he did. And while he was gone, Merab was given in marriage to another man. Now, now, we're not sure. We're not sure if David's response here was, was him declining the offer or if Saul just reneges on the deal. We're not sure exactly what happens there. But sometime later, Saul comes up with another idea, and he's not very original. Saul found out that his other daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And it pleased him. Man, Saul's scheming again. <laughs> yeah. I'll get him this time. Look in verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul. And the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him. That she may be a snare for him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. 
Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. Didn't work out the last time. You be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants. He knew he was going to need encouragement. Speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you. And all his servants love you. Now, that part was true. Now, then become this king's son-in-law. So they're, they're encouraging David because they want him to be the son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? Well, that's not exactly true, David. You're stretching. That's humility there. But And the servants... Of Saul told Saul thus, and so did David speak. Okay, so Saul knew David would need some encouragement. He sends his servants. They ran back to Saul. David responded as he had before. David knew. David knows he's the anointed one, God's man for the throne. It's not just doing the right thing, though. It's doing the right thing in the right way. How we do things matter. And David wasn't going to take the throne. He knew God would give it to him at the right time in the right way. And so he trusted God. But Saul knew what he would say. He'd been there, done that, right? So he's ready. So here's how he responds in verse 25. Look at that. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now, David, now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Oh, okay. So, man, isn't this getting interesting? Saul could have been a crooked salesman. I'll give you this for free for a hundred dollars. It won't cost you anything but a hundred dead enemy soldiers. What a deal! Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. You know, a self-centered life is one that seeks to deceive and use others for personal gain. Saul didn't hesitate to use his daughters as pawns in his evil scheme. He's using and abusing. It's all about him. What have you done for me lately? Saul is using his daughters, he's using his servants, and he's trying to manipulate David. He thinks he's being clever and wise, but again, the wis- this wisdom's not from above. It's unspiritual and it's evil. And for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And you see, see David's response. I love this. There's no fear here. He doesn't hear, I got to go kill ten enemy soldiers. He hears, I get to be the king's son-in-law. That's what he says. I get to be the king's son-in-law. It pleased David that he had Michael loving David. It pleased, I mean, it pleased Saul to to try to trap David. It pleased Saul to, to try to kill David in this way. But it pleased David to take the challenge. It was a price he knew he could pay. But beyond that, David's confidence wasn't in his sword or his brave men under his uh, command. No, his confidence was in the Lord and his promises. David didn't hear an impossible challenge. In faith, he heard, I'm going to be the king's son-in-law. Now, David had twice called Goliath the uncircumcised Philistine. 
Circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and his people. It was, and so David calling Goliath that, it was a way of saying this guy's not with God. He's not on God's side. And it's, it's as if Saul is saying, okay, David, since this is a big deal to you, by the way, the covenant was a big deal to God, a hundred Philistine foreskins for my daughter's hand in marriage. And Saul's thinking, I got you this time, buddy. I got you. But listen, David was already the Philistines' most despised enemy. He had killed their champion, and in a humiliating way. But Saul knows this act against the Philistines, even if David somehow defeats a hundred Philistines, will certainly make him all the more enemy number one. Right? And this time, I couldn't help but wonder. I wonder if David... I'm thinking David probably didn't tell the Philistines what he was going to do before the battle this time, like he had with Goliath. I'm thinking probably not. But I want you to think about this. Here is Saul, the king of Israel, and he's pulling for the enemy of his nation. How messed up is that? He's, he's pulling against his men, and he's pulling for the Philistines. He's so eat up with jealousy and hatred for David. He, and, he, and he puts a timeline on it. You've got to do this, and you've got to do it before this time. But it says, before the time was up, David and his men returned from the battle. And what did he have for King Saul? He had some trophies. All right, so let's pick it up. Bef- right, right there at 27. Before the time had expired, David arose and went, and along with his men, and killed 200 of the Philistines... And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So So Saul was David's enemy continually. Wow. Okay, so the bride price was 100. He brought back 200. And let's see the reactions. This first one is kind of imagined, but we're told that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. Oh, honey, darling, nothing says you love me more than doubling the bride price. She must have thought, how romantic. Okay, I'm having fun. (laughs) But Saul, think about Saul. He never considered that David might pull this off, that he might might accomplish this. He assumed that David was going to die trying. And David walks in with these grisly trophies. And I can imagine Paul, I I can imagine Saul saying, oh, oh, you're back. Oh, um, yeah, just, no, 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 don't bring them to me. Just just put them over there. Further back. A fisher counter. Go, go back there and make sure there's a hundred. Oh, there's two hundred. Good job, David. Yeah. Saul must have been thinking in his rage, why won't you die? It's as if there's some supernatural force protecting David. Yeah. Now, Saul's wicked plot had ensnared himself. Not only is David alive, but his reputation is growing and Saul can't take his offer back. 
At the beginning of the chapter, Jonathan had, in effect, made clear that David should be the next king. And now Saul's daughter marries David. And now David is officially part of the royal family with a legal path to the throne. What Saul meant for evil, God meant for good. Does that sound familiar? And God uses Saul's schemes for his purposes. He's working his plan. God is working his plan. And then fourth point, a God-centered life is empowered by God's presence and experiences God-given success. A self-centered life creates enemies and is consumed by sin and fear. Let's pick it up again in verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So a third time, Michael's love is mentioned, and it causes Saul to be even more afraid of David. Saul sees David as a threat and as an enemy, but even his family loves David. The meaning of the word for enemy here carries with it the idea of hostility and hate. So Saul is finding himself at odds with everyone else. Listen, if your life is about you and your kingdom, don't be surprised when your sin and selfishness pushes others away. Sin hurts others and breaks relationships. But there's a much larger reason here for Saul's fear. What was it that made David so different from Saul? We're told three times in this chapter that the Lord was with David and once that the Lord had departed from Saul. But this last time Saul saw and Saul knew that the Lord was with David. He had seen David's success before and it seems he had suspected God's presence and his favor. But here it's clear. Here it's clear. David, I mean, Saul finally knows, he knows that the Lord is with David. And here's, here's what's amazing here. Saul's fear and David's success both came from the same reality that God was with David. The Lord was with David. God gave him success and what God was doing was bigger than David. God was working in and through David to do a work in his people. And in this passage, we're given great insight into Saul's heart. And he's selfish. He's a sin-sick man. And let me just say, that's where we all are apart from Christ. Amen? Yes. Sin is powerful. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. With Saul, there was no repentance. His heart was hard. Four times in this passage, we hear Saul's thoughts as he attempts to see David murdered. But here we see that he's he's not just feeling jealousy and and selfish ambition and anger. He is full of fear. Three times we're told that Saul is afraid. And again, this fear is attached to this reality. The Lord is with David, the one he has made his enemy. Of course, nobody else knows that yet, but they will soon. At this point, for sure, Saul knew he was opposing God by opposing David. But that didn't stop him. Listen, 
if you're really, if you're going to go against God, you have a reason to be afraid. Did you hear me? Now, there's a holy fear and reverence that we all should have for God. But apart from Christ, we are in our sin enemies of holy God. Gordon J. Keddy said, the madness is that perennial irrationalism of the sinner. The idea that he can actually overthrow the will of God and get away with it. Sin, all sin, is mad in that sense. Joel said sin makes us stupid. All sin is mad in that sense. It flies in the face of inevitable destruction. The wages of sin is death, and the history of human sin is a catalog of ultimately doomed attempts to turn reality, that reality, on its head. Sin makes us enemies of holy God. All will stand before a holy judge. What will we do? Faith in God's anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, is the answer. Romans 5 says that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still enemies, I mean sinners, his enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Salvation is found in Christ. And if you find yourself this morning resembling Saul more than Jonathan and David, I want to encourage you to look to Christ. He is the one you need. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. He's the answer. There was a story of a child who became a queen of her country. And one day from an upper story palace window, she watched the throngs of people walking by. They were milling about doing their daily business. And finally, she turned to the lady attendant there and she asked, do all these people belong to me? And the wise lady replied, no, my child, you belong to them. But let me give that a twist and say, Saul believed the people and the power and the kingdom belonged to him. David knew that he and the people and the power and the kingdom belonged to the king of kings. You can live your life. You can live as if your life is your kingdom. But one day you'll see that the possession of your life and your power was an illusion. Saul jealously feared losing something that was never really his. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Saul was fighting for his life as he knew it, and he would lose it. Those who come to Christ, who turn from sin and self and seek forgiveness and believe in and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, they'll find life eternal and abundant. Now, you may not fit into one of these categories perfectly. I don't believe that will happen, probably. 
But I pray for God's conviction where it's needed for you today. If you're in Christ, you are a work of grace and you're a work in progress. Amen. Let me summarize. Those who center their lives on self and sin serve themselves and their selfish desires. They're characterized by anger because they try to control but can't. And jealousy because they're holding on to things that aren't theirs to hold on to. And envy and hate and fear. That is living according to the wisdom of the world and that leads to spiritual chaos. Does that not sound like our world today? Those who live this way receive their sin and the consequence of their sin and will ultimately experience God's judgment. But those who center their lives on God serve in community. They're characterized by love and godly relationships. Listen, are you lone rangering it today? If so, you're in sin. Look to Hebrews 10. Do not forsake the assembly. God made us as different parts of the body of Christ. We need one another. Plug in and experience the joy of godly relationships and serving the Lord together. Those who are centered on the Lord are characterized by faith and are characterized by love. Let me ask you, would anyone describe your love for them like Jonathan's love for David? He loves me as much as he loves himself. We're to love our neighbors that way. We're to love that way. Let me encourage you. Seek to have close close relationships with your brothers and sisters. Share your heart and your life together here. May we encourage one another and spur one another on to love and good works while it's still called today. Thirdly, receive God's sovereign direction and protection. Man, David wasn't aware of all the times, I'm sure, he wasn't aware of all the times that God intervened to keep that boy alive. And you know what? Neither are you and I. God doesn't take a day off. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. And then... Those who have God-centered lives experience God's success and enjoy God's abiding presence. God's success is His purposes and His plans fulfilled in and through our lives as we live for Him. That's what His success is. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean it ain't going to be tough. It means that He is working His plans through us as we live for Him. And as we do, we're walking with Him. He has promised To be there with us. To never leave us nor forsake us. He is there with us as we abide with Him. His greatest gift to us is Himself. And all God's people need to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would guard our hearts. That we would live our lives centered on You. That we would be about building Your kingdom and not our own. Lord, I pray for your conviction of sin where that's needed this morning. Where some of those characteristics that we saw or that we see and saw are are showing their heads in our battle against sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us live lives of daily repentance. 
Lord, that we would seek to stay close to you and to walk with you and to experience your abiding presence in our lives. Lord, help us to hear you when you urge us not to trust in our own wisdom or the wisdom of this world. Lord, help us to hear you when you urge us not to trust in our own strength. Lord, help us to hear you when you invite us to rely on you and you alone. And rely on the reality that we know you, the everlasting God. Lord, teach us to trust you. Trust what you have done for us through Jesus. To trust that you're going to guide us as we walk filled with your spirit. Lord, thank you for your love and for the grace you give us to live this life you called us to live. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.